Well, everyone feels uh, guilty sometimes, and guilt feels awful, uh, if not debilitating. But what do we do with our guilt? Psychology Today posted an article which gave five causes of guilt. The first was guilt for something you did wrong. The second was guilt for something you didn't do but want to do. The third cause was guilt for something you think you did, as in sometimes you feel bad for invented guilt or imaginary fault. Fourth was guilt that you didn't do enough to help someone else, which is sometimes called compassion fatigue. Uh, Lastly was guilt that you're doing better than someone else, which is sometimes called survivor guilt. Maybe you survived and your loved one didn't. Maybe you succeeded and your loved one didn't and you feel bad about it. And the article made some good points. The author rightly said, it's appropriate to feel guilty when you've done something wrong. Well, that's good. That suggests some level of objective morality. But then the author relativized morality by classifying drunkenness and adultery as merely personal standards instead of objective moral standards. The solution the article gave for coping with guilt was flawed. It said, you can't live a completely guilt-free life, but you can keep it within manageable bounds. So the person feeling guilty needs to manage the guilt themselves, manage their own guilt. Essentially, face your guilt, make amends, and change yourself. But is guilt something that we can take care of ourselves? Here's where I think the article makes a a foundational error which leads to this faulty solution. This secular article disregards the holiness of God and the fact that every person is objectively guilty under God's law. It fails to connect feelings of guilt to objective guilt under God's law. See, feelings of guilt will will never be appropriately addressed or alleviated until a person faces their objective guilt under God's law and turns to God for the solution, as the solution. Now, there are unjustified reasons to feel guilt. But when it comes to justified reasons, justified guilt for doing, thinking, and even feeling wrong, we need a better solution than managing our own guilt. We need true internal transformation of our minds and our hearts accompanied by external transformation of our behavior, which only the Spirit of God can do. An article from Psych Central says, quote, guilt makes us take responsibility when we've done something wrong and helps us to develop a greater sense of self-awareness. I think that's true. I think that's true, but more than a uh, sense of self-awareness, when it comes to guilt, we need a greater sense of God awareness. Brothers and sisters, we accumulate guilt every day. So we need the gospel every day, which tells us that we are justified in Christ alone who removes our objective guilt. We need to be reminded that God compassionately meets us in our guilt and empowers us by His Holy Spirit to repent boldly, to trust in His provision of grace in Christ, 
and to rest secure in his acceptance and in his love. True and lasting relief from guilt is found in looking to Christ alone and not trying to manage guilt on your own. Brothers and sisters, we don't need pop psychology or self-help or behavior modification to manage our guilt. We need the gospel to relieve us of our guilt. As we look to Christ and we think on Christ, we find that our sin and our guilt drives us not to despair, dear brothers and sisters, but to Christ in repentance to find mercy and grace and forgiveness Guilt can work for our good. It should. Only by looking to Christ do we find relief from our guilt. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12, is a heavy text. It contains disturbing images and truths, but Matthew's severity is intentional to prepare you to find mercy and grace in Christ. Expect this message to be severe because the text is severe. Keep in mind that Matthew is accentuating themes like sin, guilt, repentance, God's wrath, and hell to lead you to obtain mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Despair is not Matthew's aim and neither is it mine this morning. Around 30 years or so passes between the end of Matthew 2 and the beginning of Matthew 3. Decades have passed since last week. John the Baptist shows up and he starts preaching. Well, who was John the Baptist? Matthew writes, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The other gospels talk um, about John the Baptist in different ways, but here Matthew quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 and applies it to John. See, John is the voice crying in the wilderness of Isaiah 40 verse 3. God's promised prophet sent to preach repentance to prepare the way for the Lord and his kingdom. Right after Isaiah prophesied about John in verse 3, he adds in verse 5, and pay close attention to this, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God sent John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, to preach repentance right before the glory of the Lord is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we know what's coming after John. Now, why is John the Baptist important? John is an essential link between God's Old Testament covenant promise of Christ and the timely arrival of Christ to achieve salvation promised by God in his covenant of grace. The well-timed arrival and bold preaching ministry of John the Baptist marks the arrival of Christ who achieves salvation for God's people before Christ accomplishes redemption. A prophet was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for Christ, and that's what John was doing. 
by preaching to Israel repentance and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So John is a critical piece of God's eternal plan of redemption. His severe preaching of sin, guilt, repentance, God's wrath, and hell is actually exciting. Exciting because his preaching readies us to receive mercy and grace in Christ who is redemption. The time of redemption had come. John and his preaching are yet another persuasive argument from Matthew to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Christ, sent to save his people from their sin, guilt, and misery. As severe as John's preaching was, it confirms God's mercy and grace for us in Jesus Christ. Saints, the message of guilt is preparatory for the message of grace. The message of guilt is preparatory for the message of grace. John the Baptist's ministry, it substantiates the order guilt, grace, gratitude. John the Baptist was eccentric. He wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wasn't normal. This guy is not normal. And, and he didn't live the high life by any way, shape, or form. But nevertheless, John the Baptist was famous. Now, why would Matthew mention the details about what he wears and what he eats? Well, I think to further confirm that John was God's promised prophet who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8 says that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Wonderful connection. Now, if you're in Citizens Bank Park in Philly and a big six-foot-three, 220-pound bearded man comes trotting past you in cleats and in a Phillies uniform, he might not look like you, he might not look like the other fans around you, but you know who he is, and you know what he has come to do. His clothing gives him away. We know who John is, and we know that he was sent to prepare the way for someone greater. Now, what was John the Baptist's message? John preached guilt, grace, gratitude, all in preparation for the ministry of Christ. First, and this is the longest point, John the Baptist preached guilt in preparation for Christ. Preaching, a lot of people misunderstand preaching. Preaching is the public proclamation of an authorized spokesman a proclamation not of his own ideas, not of his own opinions, but of an authoritative message given to him. So like Isaiah, John called Israel to repentance to make way for the coming of Christ and his kingdom. When John preached, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, it meant, as John Calvin noted, that we may take out of the way those sins which obstruct the kingdom of Christ and thus may give access to his grace. John's message was simple, direct, and from God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two things, a command and a reason for the command. The command was repent, repent. And for what reason? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what is repentance? Repentance might hear that word. Do we know what it means? 
Simply put, it's turning from sin to God. True repentance is an inward change of disposition towards sin, which inevitably leads to an outward change of behavior for the glory of God. So let me flesh that out a little bit for you. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? And it answers this way. It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. But what does that mean? The Heidelberg asks next, what is the dying of the old nature? Listen carefully. It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. The Heidelberg then asks, what is the coming to life of the new nature? Listen carefully. It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Okay, so repentance is not merely regret. Oh, I really feel bad about that. That's not repentance. Repentance is so much more. Repentance is an inward change of disposition towards sin. We come to hate sin because God hates sin. We come to have sorrow over our sin precisely because it offends God. True repentance then includes heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to flee sin in order to instead obey God's law for God's pleasure. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains repentance in similar terms. It asks, what is repentance to life? It answers like this. Repentance to life is a saving grace, meaning God grants it. God gives repentance. That's Acts 11, verse 18. A saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full intention of and endeavor after new obedience. So for repentance to be genuine, it must be given to the sinner by God and must include a true sense of sin, an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, grief and hatred of sin, and actual turning from sin to God, and a full commitment and pursuit of new obedience to God's law. It's got to have all of that, or my friends, it's not true repentance that leads to life. Dr. Daniel Duriani nicely summarizes it all like this. The penitent man grieves that he has offended God. He hates the sin he has committed. The sinner may feel dreadful and numb. He may have caused much damage or little, but the penitent, unlike Judas, refuse to despair. They turn from their heinous, they turn from heinous sin to a gracious God. They know God is merciful. They also know that true repentance entails a constant endeavor to walk with God in obedience. The repentant turn from sin once for all, yet we also turn to Jesus daily for mercy 
and for healing, end of quote. Why do you turn from sin? And really study your heart on this. Why do you turn from sin? Theologians have a term for fake repentance. It kind of looks like repentance, but it's not repentance. It's called attrition. Attrition is turning from sin merely out of fear of getting caught or losing something and not out of love and sorrow over offending God. Attrition, it turns from sin, but not because of love. God demands contrition or true repentance that I defined earlier. Okay, what reason did John give to repent? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what does that mean? One source explained the kingdom or the reign of God is what the Old Testament prophets awaited. God's display of his sovereignty in the redemption of his people and the destruction of his enemies. John and Jesus proclaim that the time of waiting is over and the king himself has come, end of quote. In other words, John preached repentance because the sovereign king of heaven had arrived to save his people, but also, we got to hear this, to conquer his enemies. The message of the coming of the kingdom of heaven includes a message of turning from sin to God and judgment, the judgment of God for those who refuse to repent and turn to him. John was instructing Israel to clear the way, open the highway, open wide so that you may receive the king and his glorious reign. John said in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Verses 5 and 6 say, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. John was preaching more than guilt. He was preaching what to do with guilt. Repent from sin to God. John called Israel to repentance, and, and they responded. They confessed their sins and guilt, and they were baptized, which signified God's cleansing from sin and guilt, all in preparation for the one who would keep God's covenant, keep God's law, and save God's people from their sin and guilt. Can you see how John the Baptist is transitional to get us to Jesus? And when, when God is at work, there are always religious fakes around. The Pharisees and Sadducees showed up, and John went after them. You brood of vipers. That's some nickname. Ouch. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? Like, I wonder how he said that. You know, do you think it was passive? I just wonder, you know... Who did warn you to do? I, I, I think he was fiery. I really do. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Tragically, they weren't there to repent. They were insincere frauds. And John warned them, and he warned the crowd too, with the threat of God's holy wrath. God's holy wrath is upon self-righteous and unrepentant people. Make no mistake. Now, what is God's wrath? As Dr. Leon Morris explains, God's wrath is the settled opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. 
His opposition to evil. God's wrath is His holy hatred, righteous rage, and appropriate antagonism to all that is wicked. If God does not oppose all evil, God is not good. His wrath is part of His goodness. He must oppose wickedness, and He does with righteous rage. John kept warning them, verses 9 and 10, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's Abraham once again. Now apply what you've learned about the Abrahamic covenant. Apply what you've learned about the book of Galatians. Apply what you've learned about justification by faith alone. Being a child of Abraham, or we could say an authentic Jew, has nothing to do with ethnicity. And everything to do with turning from sin to God in faith. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they found assurance in God establishing his covenant with their relatives. But they didn't find assurance in God himself, in God's mercy, in God's grace. So let me ask, where is your assurance? Is it in your Christian parents? Or in the prayer that you said years ago? Or even in your faith? Or is it in God's provision of grace in Christ and the Holy Spirit who bears witness to grace from within you? Where is your assurance? Now, how does a tree do when an ax cuts it off at the roots? It dies, it dries, it fries. My friends, unrepentant sin kills and leads people who pursue it Straight to hell. John's message of sin, guilt, repentance, God's wrath, and hell, it is severe. All of us can sense that, but it is to be for people, it's preached for people to feel their need of Christ. And, and it is to prepare them to receive Christ. The message of guilt is preparatory for the message of grace. John would not have prepared the way for Christ if he had preached, cheer up, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. That would not have helped. Building self-esteem doesn't prepare the way for Christ. It doesn't prepare the way for the gospel. In verse 12, John is unmistakable in what he says about hell. He preached to Israel. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John used a metaphor to describe God's judgment and hell. 
You see, wheat is harvested and then it is piled on the threshing floor and in come the oxen and they trample it down, separating the wheat from the husks. A pitchfork tosses the wheat up into the air. The wheat uh, kernels that are heavier fall straight to the ground and the husks in the wind kind of blow off to the side and they keep doing this. And then the wheat is collected into the barn and then the husks are all collected and burned. Friends, Jesus holds the winnowing fork. He will clear his threshing floor. Let us never forget that Jesus sentences unrepentant people to hell. Revelation 19 says that Jesus will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's Jesus, the mighty King. John the Baptist did not preach feel-good-about-yourself messages. He preached guilt. He preached repentance. He preached the glories of the kingdom of heaven. He preached what God sent him to preach in order to do what? In order to prepare the way for someone greater who was coming. The gospel in human flesh. I read an article by an author, former pastor, and proponent of what's called hyper-grace. And the article was titled, Three Reasons Why I Don't Preach on Repentance. The author believes people should repent, but doesn't preach repentance. Lots of preachers today don't preach repentance. But see, the prophets preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The first time that we hear Jesus preach in Matthew, he says what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Get that now. God's son came from heaven to earth to preach repentance. I think we need to hear repentance preached. John the Baptist preached guilt in preparation for Christ. That's the longest point. Second, John the Baptist preached grace in preparation for Christ. I hope these thoughts challenge you here. First, when the spotlight is shown on legitimate guilt now, not illegitimate guilt, but legitimate guilt, it's grace. Because it alerts us to our desperate need of Christ and it beckons us to look to him for mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, and love. Repentance leads sinners to a kind-hearted God who gently receives the penitent. So John's message of repentance, man, it was like straight over the plate, slam in the pulpit, come on! But that was gracious, That was gracious. Second, John also preached the imminence of the kingdom of heaven, which is grace for repentant sinners. The the arrival of the kingdom is terrifying for unrepentant sinners, but supreme relief for repentant sinners. The the guilt-removing Savior had come. That's grace. That's better than 10 seconds left on the clock. You're in the fourth in the championship game, and you're winning by 40. That's better 
The, the coming kingdom is good news for those running from their sin to God. Oh, let the kingdom come. That's good news. Third, John preached God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. Verse 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. God is sovereign and will keep his covenant promise to Abraham by his means. He'll do it. He'll keep the covenant. He'll keep his promises. Fourth, in verse 12, John alluded to the glory of heaven for those who trust God. Let me ask you this. Where is the wheat taken? Into the barn. The farmer takes the wheat into the barn. Heaven. As much as John preached the horrors of hell, he also gave the hope of heaven. Repentance leads sinners to life in heaven with God. But here's where I really want to draw your attention. Fifth, verse 11, listen to this promise of grace to the crowd. John preaches, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was great, but on his heels was someone so much greater. John's preaching was great, but on his heels was a greater preacher. John's baptism with water for repentance was great, but on his heels was a greater baptism. John preached the supremacy of Christ, therefore John preached grace. John was not a people pleaser. John was not an attention seeker. He knew his role, get people ready to receive Christ by preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom, preaching God's wrath and hell, and preaching the supremacy of Christ, and then just fade away and let him go. Now, some Christians distort the idea of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire and misuse this truth to justify bizarre unbiblical, and quite frankly, blasphemous things. John's meaning here is relatively clear. Jesus would pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people to do what? To empower them to trust Christ, to love and obey God, and to become more like Christ. Fire is linked with the Holy Spirit. I think, to explain that the Holy Spirit purifies God's people from their sin. Doesn't fire purify? Now, my kids and I, if you haven't checked him out, check him out online, Grant Thompson. He has a YouTube channel. He does all kinds of, of uh, cool things. And he has this video where he handcrafted a homemade mini metal foundry. It's pretty amazing, and it looks kind of dangerous, actually. So those of you adventuresome types, you might want to try this out at home. Just don't blow the place up or catch your house on fire. Don't do it in the kitchen, men. Men, don't do it in the kitchen. Women have better sense. Well, he would melt out the uh, aluminum cans, and then he would skim off the top the impurities so that he'd end up with pure aluminum. And then he pours it into sand with styrofoam, and it burns the styrofoam, and then he makes replicas of stuff, like a handgun or a sword or whatever. It's really cool. Fire brings purity. Intense heat. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, I think, points to the Spirit's indwelling, 
God's people and purifying them from sin so that they can live like Jesus. I think it's pretty simple. One study note explained, quote, the fire of the Spirit renews the people of God and consumes the wicked as chaff, end of quote. The Holy Spirit in fire is both renewal and purification for God's people and judgment for unrepentant people. John's promise of Jesus' baptism with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and with fire is a promise of mighty grace, mighty grace. The coming Savior sends the Spirit to live inside of his people and to help them in their journey towards the kingdom, to help them get there. And this is marvelous and amazing grace. Recognizing guilt precedes delighting in God's mercy and grace. We don't receive mercy and grace unless we're guilty. And we're not thankful for mercy and grace unless we've first felt the weight of our guilt and we realize that we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. John's ministry was essential to prepare the way for God's mercy and God's grace in Christ. John the Baptist preached guilt and he preached grace in preparation for Christ. Third and finally, John the Baptist preached gratitude in preparation for Christ. Verse 8 is simple. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's simple to understand. John Calvin said, quote, Repentance, which is attested by words, is of no value unless it be proved by the conduct. Unless it be proved by the conduct. Friends, repentance is not genuine unless it produces fruit, unless it produces good works. In other words, gratitude. Gratitude is not simply this warm, fuzzy feeling that God has been good to us, that, that somehow is inside of us. Here's what gratitude is. It's offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice of thankfulness. Every day, offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice of thankfulness. When your disposition towards sin changes, so does your lifestyle. So does your lifestyle. John preached gratitude to Israel. He heralded a message of repent and prove it by a life characterized by obedience to God. He wasn't like, you can all be perfect, just do it. He wasn't preaching perfectionism. He was simply preaching a, a regular message of constantly returning from your sin and, and turning to God and then proving it by how we live our life. That's genuine repentance. When we are aware of our guilt, brothers and sisters, and, and we are truly brokenhearted over it, and also aware of God's mercy and grace in Christ who removes our guilt, how could we not be thankful to God and live for Him because we love Him? How could that not be the response? Now let's face it, many times we don't sin in certain ways because we fear the consequences and not because we love God. I have that going on. I bet you do too. And we need to repent of our motives of repentance. We need the gospel. We need to look to Christ. We need the Spirit to grant us repentance, the kind of repentance that leads to life. Look to Christ and expect Him 
believe that he's going to do it when you ask to put inside of you a true sense of your sin and guilt and an understanding of his mercy and compassion and a true sorrow and hatred of sin and a desire and a power and effectiveness to turn from sin to God to live a life pleasing to him. Relentlessly ask God to give you his grace and to give you his Holy Spirit and then thank him for his grace and thank him for giving you the Holy Spirit as you repent to God. This is something we have to do every morning, every moment of the day. I think you get it where you fall into the same sin again. And you're like, come on, can I even be saved? How many of you have thought that? I have thought that. Can I even be saved if I'm doing this again? And what do we do with that? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, turn back to God again. You can't stop turning back to God. Turn from your sin, turn to God. Turn from your sin, turn to God. And and just receive his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness. What do you do with your guilt? Well, here are a few options. You hear about your sin and guilt and you feel so bad, you despair. Well, that's what Judas did and despair doesn't end well. Not a good option. You hear about your sin and guilt and you feel so bad that you don't want to hear about your sin and guilt anymore. The temptation is to shut your ears. You know what I mean? La, 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 la. We don't even want to hear it. We shut out anybody who's going to tell us about it. But that's not the solution. That's called avoidance. All right, you hear about your sin and guilt and you feel so bad that you turn to various earthly pleasures to numb your pain. I know what this is like, but that doesn't remove your guilt. It's actually idolatry that increases your guilt. So that's not a good option. Earthly pleasure may suppress guilt for a time. It might make it maybe a little bit easier to swallow sometimes, but it will never be the ultimate solution. All right, you hear about your sin and guilt and you feel so bad that you strive really hard to make behavior changes. You're gonna change the way that you live. Well, this may feel like it helps, but it only makes things worse because people can change behavior without truly repenting, which does what? It feeds their pride or it puts this huge burden on them to do what they actually can't do. It just buries people in one way or another. And they just feel like, i got to change myself. So none of those responses are effective. Here is a much better response to your guilt. You hear about your sin and guilt, and you feel so bad that you have offended God, that you run from sin to Christ, who is your righteousness, and you plead with him to give you mercy and grace and the Holy Spirit, and you receive his mercy and grace and his Holy Spirit by faith, with thankfulness, and then you set out once again to live a life for the pleasure of God. This is the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do every day. We go to Christ for mercy, grace, compassion, power, love, and he gives it all to us in Christ. Our God is faithful. And why does he give it to us? Because we belong to him and because he loves us. 
Repentance is a hopeful message because it leads to a loving God who lavishes his mercy and grace upon humble and penitent people. You crush by your guilt? You feel real humbled by that? Great. When you run to God, guess what he's going to give you? Compassion, love, all that you need. Now, maybe you feel down, just totally beat down because of your besetting sins. And maybe you wish that you were farther along. Maybe you're, you're nearing the end of your life and you look back and you say, my goodness, why am I not further after all these years of sitting in church? And it just discourages you and drains you. And maybe you wish that you could be much further along with God. Please listen to Dr. Doriani's counsel on this. I want to read you a quote because I think it's really going to encourage you and build you up. So listen to this. Habitual sins blind us so that a truly penitent person may labor for years to break deeply ingrained habits. I have a friend who cursed, swore, and blasphemed most prodigiously before he became a Christian. All who knew him saw his progress, yet he still unleashed torrents of obscenities when he committed what he considered an egregious error in athletic contests. For me, that's the golf course. It's not about me. Here we go. We come to see some evils very slowly. Since it can take a lifetime to shed our sins, repentance is a way of life. Repentance is a way of life. Brothers and sisters, some of your besetting sins are dying really slowly, and you're ticked off. You're tired of it. I am. Good grief, I should be way beyond where I am because of the grace of God. But I just want to say, take heart. Take heart. Repentance is a way of life for those who love God. Keep repenting. Keep turning from your besetting sins to a loving God, a merciful God, a compassionate God trusting that he meets you right where you are in the middle of your guilt and he meets you there to help you. And he promises, he promises you that he will complete the work that he began in you. He's not going to let you alone. He's going to work in you and complete the work. He's not finished with you yet. His grace is sufficient, so repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because your father loves you. Repent because he will receive you again and again and again and again. Repent even after you've made a complete mess of things. Repent to God. Repent so that you can delight in your Father's grace again and again and again. True and lasting relief from guilt is found in looking to Christ alone and not trying to manage guilt on your own. Look to Christ and find in him your relief from guilt. 